Good morning, Salt City Church. My name is Drake, and I am the community pastor here at Salt City Church. Uh, we have been starting off this series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and so if you have a Bible or a phone, open up to 1 Corinthians 2, um, and we'll be spending our time there this morning. So in preparation for this passage, it, it brought me back to this book that I read once. So it's a book called Living with a Seal, and that's the Navy kind, all right? I'm sure both would be a rather interesting read. But this man who lived in a New York high-rise wanted to kind of shake things up in his life a little bit, and so he invited a Navy SEAL into his apartment for 30 days. This man by the name of David Goggins, uh, he has been named the toughest man alive. And let me just roll through a little bit of his resume, okay? So he is the only member of the military to complete the Army Rangers, Air Force Tactical Air Control Training, and Navy SEALs training, which that he did three times. He has completed 60 ultra marathons, many of those being 100 miles. And here's one of those races that he did. He got to mile 70. And this is in 24 hours, he's trying to run 100 miles. He got to mile 70, realized he had broken both of his feet. He tore muscles in his legs And he had stress fractures in his shins. And he said, well, I got to finish this race. Sprinted the last 30 miles. Like I I rolled my ankle on the curb in my driveway a couple weeks ago. You know, and I was done for the day. Steep curb, but you know. (laughs) He also has the Guinness Book of World Records for doing 4,030 pull-ups in 17 hours. Just kind of different breed, all right? Imagine that guy coming into your house. Like, you're, I'll do whatever he says. You know, he, he gives me some different commands. I'll try it. I'll, you know, probably be in tears in some of those different challenges he'd bring. He made the dude sleep in a chair overnight. He, a lot of different wild things, okay? But David Goggins is known for his confidence. He's known for his kind of motivational speech. He's known for his incredible strength and passion, And it's all those characteristics that makes him one of the most powerful motivational speakers of our day. People look at him, and they're in awe of who he is, and they are motivated to live differently. And yet, those characteristics couldn't be less true of Paul in this passage. Paul is the opposite end of the spectrum when we look at someone who's trying to motivate other people He doesn't exhibit any of those qualities that our world would look at and see as a compelling leader. Here's a description that someone had of Paul from that day. So this quote says, he was a man of middling size. I don't even know what that means. And his hair was scanty. His legs were a little crooked. His knees were far apart. He had large eyes, and this is the best, and his eyebrows met. Okay, it wasn't cool then either. Last thing, and his nose was somewhat long. Okay, that was like the picture that people had in their mind when they went back to Paul coming to town. And so we have to ask, how did someone like that compel people to follow him? How do Christians look to someone like that to be a leader for the rest of your life? We're going to look at that in a couple different ways. The first way that we're going to see that is we're going to look at our soul focus. Let's open up in chapter 2 in verse 1 where it says this. 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul kicks off this chapter by laying out the posture that he chose to come to the Corinthians in. And again, this is in stark contrast to what leaders of that day would have been trying to do. And so enemies of Paul in this church, who were known maybe for their attractiveness or were known for their wealth, their power, their rhetoric, and their speech, and how eloquent they were, they would look at Paul, and they would say to his followers, how can you follow someone like that? How can you be compelled with your life by someone who trembles when they talk, by someone who is noticeably fearful when he comes to you? But if you look at this passage, it's not that Paul wasn't a brilliant person. Like, we know that he was brilliant, and we can even see it in some of his arguments that he gives throughout the book of Acts. But he says that this was a posture that he chose to come in, that he decided to come in this posture. And so Paul said, I decided not to come to you in lofty speech, not to come with this eloquent wisdom. I'm not trying to win you over with my words. I'm not trying to grab your attention and create awe in your heart by how I speak. But then he also goes to his demeanor. He says, when I was with you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. I didn't come with these plausible, persuasive words. Like, if you've seen any sort of TED Talk or masterclass on public speaking, Paul did the opposite. He would have been the not top 10 list for how you should present yourself in front of a group of people. And he said, that's, how I, that's what I decided to come to you with. And we have to ask, like, Paul, that sounds like a terrible idea. Why would you choose to come in that way? Even in our own heart, we want someone who's compelling. We want someone that we can listen to that kind of creates excitement to our ears. Why would Paul choose to do that? Why would weakness and simplicity be the method that he wanted to reach the Corinthians in an age where wisdom was held so high. And the difficulty that we have with that is because in a world built on self-sufficiency, weakness has no positive outcomes. Like if we even think about the phrase that we say here at Salt City, that it's okay to not be okay, we have to remind ourselves of that because we want to be okay. We want to be self-dependent. We want to be strong. No one in here loves to be weak. No one in here loves to be dependent on someone else. Like I even reflect on my own walk with Jesus at times and the sin that I see coming up in my life. A lot of those moments, I want to actually get to a point where I'm fighting this sin to such a point where I no longer need Jesus in the fight. I can do it on my own. Our hearts crave self-dependence. And so with that being our heart's posture, confidence seems so much more compelling. But what's interesting is weakness is something that we run from at all costs, but it's the posture that Paul chose to come in. Why did Paul choose that posture? It's because Paul was bringing with him a different type 
of wisdom. He wasn't bringing this message of self-confidence or self-sufficiency. He was bringing a message of Christ's sufficiency in your place. And in that message, because he, he realized that the only thing you truly need to hear is that Christ died on the cross for all of your sin, for all of your shame. He took that upon himself so that you are freed up by his grace. Since that message is so important, he said, I chose to come knowing nothing other than that. Because Paul is basically saying, I want you to walk away, not thinking about how I spoke to you, not thinking about the eloquent words, but I want you to walk away in awe of Jesus. It was his blood that paid it all for you, not mine. It's his blood that wiped away all of your sin, even the guilt and the shame and the self-sufficiency that you are attempting to live out of as you walked into this room this morning. It was all by the blood of Christ on your behalf. That is the most important thing that you need to hear more than anything else, and that is the most important thing that defines you. And because of that reality of who Christ says who you are now based on him dying in your place, Paul is saying, I want to know nothing other than that. I want people to hear nothing other than that. So Paul's articulating that there's this beauty in weakness because when we are weak, the spotlight is no longer on us, but it's only on Jesus. The spotlight is back on who it belongs to. And Paul gives his reasoning at the, in verse 5 at the end of this paragraph for why he wanted to know nothing other than Christ and him crucified. And he says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here's what Paul knew. If you're going to be someone who can be persuaded to follow Jesus just from wise, eloquent words, you can just as easily be persuaded otherwise by other wise words out there. And I think as we consider sharing the gospel and trying to compete with the wisdom of this world, we have to ask ourselves the question, like, are there more wise people out there in this world than in this room? Like, there's some wise people in this room, but are there more wise people out there? Yes. Another motivational speaker read a lot about them this week. Uh, another motivational speaker said he wanted to read some more books, Right? And so he learned how to speed read, and in seven years, he read uh, 100 books a year, so totaled 700. How's your Goodreads goal going, you know? And so we look at these people accumulating knowledge out there and the wisdom, but Paul's saying, we're not trying to compete with them. We're not in this race for who's going to be more wise, who can have more eloquent speech, who can sway people by our words. He's saying, no, we come demonstrating a different type of power. The cross is the only thing for us to boast in. The cross is the only thing for you to place your trust in. Here's the posture that Paul is exuding to the Corinthians. The gospel doesn't need my help. Like I want you to imagine that one of your friends or someone you know wants to give you a million dollar check. Very generous friend. But they spent all this time thinking about, man, how am I going to wrap this thing for them? Like, should I put it in an envelope? Should I put it in a little baggie? Should I get some nice tissue paper to match that? Should I find some really nice wrapping paper? Should I pretty this thing up? Or maybe they even get to a point where they're like, man, should I even give it to them? I don't know if the wrapping 
looks good enough. And you're just like, hey, I don't care how you wrap the thing. I'll take the check. Like, that's what's significant. Here's what Paul is saying in this passage. I, I chose to strip away any flair from my gospel message because I know that the power is in the cross itself, not in how I present it. But how often are we more fixed on how we present the cross than the power that's found in the cross? Like if we think about the times that we've held back from sharing the gospel with other people, the reasons are all start with I. I don't know if I have the answers that they would need. I don't know if I can say as boldly and as confidently as I should. I don't know if I have the persuasive arguments that would compel this person to follow Jesus. What if instead we chose to draw our eyes back to the power that's found in the cross itself? It's the gospel that has the power of God for salvation for someone. It's the gospel that has the power to change someone. Where we would say, I am weak, therefore I cannot be used by God. Paul would say, and would we join in with Paul in saying, I am weak, therefore I can get out of the way. Therefore the power of the cross can work through a normal person like me to change someone. Because the power is found completely in the cross. Soul City Church, the gospel doesn't need our help. So our wisdom is not the same as the wisdom of this world. But Paul's going to go on to say next that it's not that we lack wisdom. It's not that we're kind of against wisdom, but it's just a different type of wisdom. And so point two, we're going to look at the path to wisdom. And that's going to start in verse 6 through 9. It says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. And so he's starting this off by saying, yet to the mature. So the mature meaning believers in Christ. Saying to the mature, we do impart a wisdom. It's the wisdom of the cross that we impart, but that wisdom is dramatically different than the wisdom of this age. And I want you to even notice the, the wording in this passage where he says the wisdom of this age, the rulers of this age. He's trying to draw their minds to see and put an emphasis on the wisdom that our world is operating off of right now, the, the great ideas that are out there, it is a temporary form of wisdom. It's just the flavor of the month. And yet, the gospel and the wisdom of the cross is a different form of wisdom. But if we're understanding how it's different, I think it's helpful to first understand what is, what is the wisdom of the world? Though the ideas have shifted, what is the foundation that the wisdom of this world operates off of? And I found this quote that I thought would be helpful. It said, it's the use of the human mind to achieve and maintain a ground for boasting before God and before man. It's us trying to use our own mind, our own abilities to create for ourselves a reason for our own praise. And how many different voices are out there telling us how to accomplish that for ourselves? how to be a better version of ourself, 
how to solve the problems that are in this world. Like you think about the motivation that podcasts are trying to give you. You think about the self-help books that are trying to change you. You think about the accounts that are trying to influence you. So many different voices that are swirling around, but Paul is saying what's different about the wisdom of this world is that the wisdom of this world that seems so compelling, that seems so captivating, is doomed to pass. And so I think about how many different perspectives have come and gone throughout all the ages. How many different leading ideas of the day have captivated the minds of many and kind of swayed them to follow a certain path in their life, but then fizzled out with that generation? And so the reason that the wisdom of the cross is different is because the wisdom of the cross and this wisdom of giving up your life in order to find your life spans before the ages began. Can you... Did you see that in the text in verse 7 where it says, which God decreed before the ages. So he's saying before this wisdom of this age, before the wisdom of all the ages, before there's problems in the world, before there was a world, God had already written out what the path to wisdom would be for you. And then it ends that sentence by saying, for our glory. The overarching plan of the wisdom of God was for your glory, was for your gain, so that one day that we in Christ will see Jesus and we will become like him. That's what's in store for us. And so what the wisdom of this world is seeking after, God had already planned it before this world ever existed. But the world is kind of under this illusion that they understand the path to gain for them. If you take a CEO by example, the CEO has this idea that, man, if I got to this role, I would experience gain. I would experience glory. But really what happens is that they're in a role where they're feeling an incredible amount of pressure. Pressure to perform. Pressure to meet the numbers. Pressure of all the opinions of people underneath them where it seems like it would be gain, it leads to more pressure. But they have to succeed again and so what we see in the Bible is that God wrote a narrative that would lead us to true wisdom, that would lead us to true gain. But Paul says this is a, a secret and hidden wisdom. And he's not talking about some sort of like Christianity 2.0 that some of us in Christ don't understand. He's talking about this reality that the wisdom of the cross, the wisdom of giving up your life in order to find it, is completely blind to the unbelieving world. In a world where our sinful heart wants our own praise, the thought of giving up your life seems so counter to that. And Paul lays out the evidence that the world around him was blind to this reality by saying that none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they understood wisdom, they would not have sacrificed Jesus. And if we remember back to chapter 1, we saw that Christ was wisdom from God. And so this world, in a pursuit of wisdom, sacrificed wisdom itself. And since the wisdom of Christ and the path of wisdom that he chose to take was so opposing to this world, they chose to put him up on a cross. 
And here's why I think it's important for us to hear that this morning. Because if we are choosing to follow him, if we're choosing to take the same path of wisdom that Jesus himself, wisdom itself took, that means that our life is going to look similar to how his life looked in this world. Jesus in every way was a threat to this world's path of wisdom. And instead of climbing up the ladder of this world, he climbed down. Instead of seeking to gain power in this world, he gave it up. And what that led to was him sacrificing his life. And so if we are choosing to follow him, our life should look similar to his. This past Friday, I, I went out with Zeta Bell, uh, and we did some Christmas shopping for Paige. A little early, that's all right. Also, she's not here this morning, so this is between us. Um, so we went out to some Christmas shopping, and I found something that was on her list. I saw the box. I was like, that's the exact model. That's the exact thing. Double check. It is. We're good to go, right? And so I, I bring this thing home, very excited. And I even wanted to pull it out of the box just to check it out. And when I bring it home, I pull it out of the box, completely different product in the box, completely different model, not the same thing at all, still a little fresh, but wasn't the right model at all for what was in the box. And here's what I'm saying. Uh, the, the product that's in the box should be the same as the product on the box, right? Like I, that just makes sense to us. And so in our walk with Christ, what we know is that in the Bible, we get a picture of what the life of Christ looked like. And so it would make sense that our life would look similar to his, right? But at times, I think we wish that our walk with Jesus was a little bit more like the product that I bought. Like, Jesus, I know that you were hating this world. I know that you didn't receive the praise of man, but you were scoffed at by man. I know that you didn't pursue the throne, but you pursued the cross. But can't my life be a little bit different than that? You will be tempted to try and simultaneously pursue the comfort of this world and the wisdom of the cross. And Paul is pointing out that that is not possible. The power that's in the cross that changed who you are is also the power that allows you to pick up your own cross and follow him as well. So when your coworker that you're not super fond of gets the praise for something, you're not starting gossip, but you're beginning the celebration for them. Or when you realize that parenting is a continual call to die to yourself day in and day out, where you give up your free time, you give up your plans for the day and sacrifice for your child, you accept that invitation. You are freed up in Christ to take the lower place. Where in your life do you need to remember that you are called to take the lower place? Is it a family member that comes to mind? Maybe a neighbor that comes to mind. Maybe it's this justification that you've been making in your heart and mind for the reasons why you shouldn't have to serve this person. But yet when we look at the way of Christ, when we look at the path to wisdom that he took, we can't create any sort of justifications 
We lower ourselves and we follow him on that path. And so in following the wisdom of Christ, we join in with Christ and giving up our lives now, but that's not where Paul ends this passage. He ends it by saying, it's not just this idea that we love sacrifice, that we love giving up our lives, but it's that we have a greater clarity. And that's our third point. And it starts in verse 10, where it says, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So at first glance, when it says the line, what God has prepared for those who love him, I think all of us think to this future day, like, what is God preparing for us in heaven? But Paul is saying, no, that's, that's a present reality that we know. Did you notice that in verse 10 where it says, the things God has revealed to those who love him? Past tense. That for those of you in Christ, God has already revealed to you what is in store by the Spirit. And then he goes on this kind of series of qualifiers by saying, the Spirit of God searches everything. The Spirit of God knows everything. The Spirit of God knows the depths of your thoughts. The Spirit of God knows the depths of the thoughts of God. And in that, the plan of God. And Paul gives this argument where it seems really obvious, but it's important for us to know it here this morning. So he said, who knows the thoughts of someone except themselves? I'm sure some of you have, have, have had moments, whether with a spouse or a roommate, where you've heard the line or said the line, I don't know why you just can't read my mind, right? But here's the, what we know. We, we aren't mind readers. We can't read the thoughts of other people. The only person that knows the thoughts of that person is that person, right? And so we are unable to understand the thoughts of God because we are not God. So then how are we to know the plans that God has for us? This text says that when you put your faith in Christ, the spirit of God that knows the thoughts of God, that comprehends all of the depths of God, entered into your heart and opened the eyes of your heart to reveal that truth to you. that you would know and understand what Christ has already done for you, that you would know in Christ that you have hope, that you know that this world is not all, there, all that there is. You know you have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven that cannot be touched by this earth. You know that you are adopted into the family of God. You know that you are a co-heir with Christ in the kingdom of heaven. You know those things to be true. That is your standing before the king right now. And since you brought nothing to the cross, it's only the power of the cross that accomplished that for you. And so it's nothing that you and your own doing could give up either. And what we know because of the wisdom of the cross is that this idea of giving up our life is not just because we love giving it up because it's because we know we have a greater gain in Christ than we would in this world. Let's continue in verse 14, where it says, the natural person does not accept 
the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So Paul continues to break down the natural and the spiritual. And what I love about that is that Paul is giving a generosity towards unbelievers in this world. He's kind of emulating the posture of Christ on the cross where he says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Paul is saying, it makes sense that they're running after pride. It makes sense that they're running after their own desires and their own praise. They don't have the spirit of God, you do. And so similarly for us, when we hear that, we can no longer have a posture over unbelievers where we're like, man, I've come to a greater understanding. I understand wisdom and I understand life more than you. Because it wasn't you that discovered that. It was the Spirit of God entering your heart. And he continues to use this word spiritual, which we want to zero in when Paul is using a word multiple times. And I think this word spiritual can kind of come up with a lot of thoughts in our minds. Like you might say, hey, I think that person's super spiritual. I have no idea what that really means. But we need to understand what Paul means by the word spiritual in this passage. And what Paul means by the word spiritual is that you have a clearer picture of reality than the unbelieving world. Where do I see that? Verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. The first time I read that, judges all things, I immediately felt like, Paul, I thought we weren't supposed to be judgmental or critical of of other people. But that's not the judgment that he's talking about. He's not talking about being critical. He's talking about how we have an ability to evaluate reality in a way that this world doesn't. So he's saying the natural person is unable to fully comprehend reality where you can. So here's here's a way that I want to describe that. I want you to think about a two-way mirror. So go back to whatever your favorite detective show is and picture that room, okay? You've got on one, one side... You've got a mirror just reflecting back in that room. And so the person that's in that space can only know the room that they're in. They, they might know that maybe there's something on the other side, but they can't picture. They, they have no idea what's on the other side of that mirror because they're only seeing what's in that room. But then the person on the other side, they are able to see through to the other room, understand what that room looks like as well as the room that they're in. Here's what Paul is saying. The natural person can only understand the natural world. They can only understand the world that they're in. They don't have the spirit of God in them to understand the spiritual realm. But for the spiritual person, you can look back to your natural life before knowing Jesus. You can look back to the life you lived before the spirit of God entered your heart and what that looked like. You can comprehend and understand that reality as well as the spiritual realm. You can understand the way of wisdom that Christ has laid out before you because the Spirit of God has entered into your heart. And so he's trying to show you that there's a very different picture, a more clear picture that you have because the Spirit of God has entered your heart. And so when you experience some pretty strong pushback, when you experience kind of hateful speech for your faith, when you experience kind of people avoiding certain conversations with you or tough conversations with family, it makes sense 
that there would be a different perspective because you have the spirit of God in you. And Paul ends this paragraph by giving us the right lens that we should see that difficulty with by saying, Christian, you have the mind of Christ. You're no longer operating off of your worldly mind and your worldly pursuits, but the the mind of Christ that caused him to come to this world to die in your place is now in you, empowering you to walk like he does. So since you have the mind of Christ, it makes sense that there would be pushback on your walk with Jesus in this world. And I want to look a little bit closer at what that mindset was. And to do that, I want to look at Hebrews 12, verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ endured the cross because he knew that there was a greater joy that awaited him. Christ gave up the throne of this world because he knew he'd be on a greater throne at the right hand of God in heaven. And so what that means for us is that the same is true. It's not that we just love to sacrifice and to give up our life, but we know because of the spirit of God in us that when we give up our life, we have a greater gain in Christ. Here's the the complexity of this passage where we look at this world pursuing after gain. What's true is that we have a greater desire of gain than this world does. We don't want to settle. We don't want to pursue lesser things. We know what is in store for us in Christ, and so we're clinging onto that reality. We're holding fast by the power of the cross in us. And because of the power of the cross in us, it it empowers us to follow the wisdom of Christ. And so what is true is that, Christian, as you follow Christ in this world, as you follow him down the ladder of this world, you're going to bump into people trying to climb the ladder. And every one of those moments is going to be a a reason maybe for question or doubt. But what Paul wants you to know is that that's not a reason for questioning. That's a reason for confidence. Because that is a reminder, that is evidence that you have a new mind now. You're operating off of a different form of wisdom. And so what Paul would want you to hear is that when you experience the difficulty of this world and the pursuit of wisdom and you're going against the current of this world, would you walk forth in courage and confidence Because as you follow the wisdom, the path of Christ in this world, you also follow him in the world to come in his everlasting kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, we, I should say, I feel in my own heart this desire to be sufficient, this desire to be good enough on my own desire to basically say, I don't, I don't need the cross in this part of my life. But wherever people are at this morning, God, I pray that you would humble us all and just invite us back to the goodness of your cross. Invite us back to, the, to that reality that there is nothing we bring to the cross, and yet, Christ, you accomplished everything for us. Would we not seek after achieving the wisdom of this world in our own praise, but would we give it up like Christ and would we lower ourselves in whatever place you have us in life, knowing that is the path to true wisdom, that is the path to true gain. 
And because, Jesus, you accomplished everything in our place, we know that you are the only one in this room that deserves the glory and the praise. And so, Father, would you cause our hearts to be stirred for you, King Jesus? And as we respond in worship, would we lift up your name? Because we know it's the power of the cross and the power of the cross alone that has changed us and that has invited us in to your everlasting kingdom. Spirit, we need you in this place. Would you come and would you receive all the glory? Amen.